Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. All right, well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and we're going to begin in verse number 12. Mark chapter 14 and verse 12. Uh, we do miss Pastor Thomas today. His wife, Symphony, uh, graduated with her doctorate in occupation therapy. So we want to praise God. We know you're watching, Thomas, and so we love you. Let's all stand as we read God's Word. Mark chapter 14 and verse number 12. The Holy Spirit says through... John Mark. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed to pass over lamb, uh, Jesus, his disciples said to Jesus, where will, we, will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and meet a man carrying a jar of water, uh, carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him and wherever he enters, Say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he told them and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, Jesus came with the 12 and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread with, into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be better for the man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it. And, and after it, blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You may be seated. I'm a routine person, and so when my routine gets off, I get a little out there, but, you know, do you ever just do things over and over and over again and not really think about them? Like, think of your, think of your morning routine, even maybe thinking about how you got here today. You got up. Uh, some of you, maybe the first thing you did was check your phone. Uh, hopefully, you brushed your teeth. <laughs> um, took a shower, put deodorant on. That's always good, too. Uh, we, we are for that here. And First Baptist, we were here for that. 
maybe you ate some breakfast or drank some coffee or something caffeinated to get you here and then you got in your car and then normally during your work week, maybe you get in your car and you drive kind of mindlessly to your job and uh, then you work or you, maybe you went to school and although thank God that's almost over for some of you and, and, and then you, you go home and then the next day it's rinse and repeat and you do it almost every day. And we normally, we don't really often think about those type of things until it's the last time we're gonna do something. And so like for some of you, like you remember the last day you ever worked because you're retired now. And some of you may remember the last day you were in a town that you lived in and then you moved from. And, but right now, like in this time of year, a lot of parents are going through something. A lot of students are going through something. That is for, for 2,160 days, their kids have gone to school over 12 year period. And now some of you experienced or will experience that this is the last day of high school or for some of you, the last day of college. And that's a big deal. As a matter of fact, uh, graduation's a huge deal. We, we, it's such a huge deal. We do like 70 times. I feel like here each grade, like you have a graduation party, but the, the class of 2023 is projected to be one of the highest in U.S. history with 17,288,000 graduating seniors from high school. And so we want to congratulate all our seniors. We're really proud of you. Amen. Praise God for that. And, and so this is, a, this is a milestone. It's a new day. And uh, for parents and students, it's the ending of one chapter and, and the beginning of a new chapter. If you're a parent here and you have just graduated the last one and now you're hoping and praying that uh, you can send them away and they're not a boomerang and you guys can go, but it's a new chapter. For kids, it's a new chapter in their life. And so you're launching, if you're a parent, you're launching your kids into a new phase. And so therefore it's a new phase of parenting. Listen, you never stop parenting, right parents? For students, it's an ending of a chapter and a beginning of a new chapter. And so there's this rite of passage, this graduation ceremony. And so we had commencement services here on Friday. Some of you maybe will be participating in those in the near future. And those graduation moments are times of remembering. You, re, you go back and, you know, you look at kid baby photos and it's a time of celebrating. Hey, I, I finally made it. And, and then it's an anticipation of what the future holds. And it's the end of the old and the beginning of the new. And that's kind of what we see in this passage here. It's the end of an old era and the beginning of a new one. And in Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, as I've said before, is the longest chapter in Mark's gospel. We have seen that Jesus has been anointed uh, for burial by Mary and that Judas Iscariot has already uh, made an agreement with the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus to do it before the Passover. And everything and for these 14 chapters has now moved us to this, this uh, inevitable apex, this inevitable climax in which Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will be crucified on a cross. And so today in chapter 14, we are going to see that uh, in the whole chapter, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be abandoned. And yet before this happens, he, Jesus, celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples and he transforms it forever. It's the end of the old and the beginning of the new. And so let's unpack that uh, this morning. Number one, the celebration of the Passover. It's the end of the old. So verse 12 tells us it's the first day of unleavened bread. It's Thursday. Uh, this would be known as the day of preparation. Just to get it in your mindset uh, is that the Jewish day 
doesn't start at 6 a.m. The Jewish day actually starts at 6 p.m. And so in the Jewish mindset is actually you start with rest and then you work. We get it backwards. We start with work and then we rest. So anyway, that, that, if you're ever on Jeopardy, there you go. Uh, you can answer that one. And, and so it was a day of preparation. And so that day of preparation was Wednesday evening all the way into Thursday until 6 p.m. And so uh, it was a day of preparation. The Passover, uh, as we talked about before, is a national holiday, even to this day, for Jewish people and the nation of Israel. It was like Independence Day, Thanksgiving and Christmas all rolled into one. And so it was a big day and, and it kind of culminated in a big meal. So there would be a sacrifice at the temple and then there would be a big meal with your family. And so it was, you know, it's like Thanksgiving and it's the day of, and the disciples come to Jesus and say like, hey, where are we gonna do this, this meal at? Because it's kind of a big deal. It'd be like on Thanksgiving days, looking at your, your wife or, or, or whoever and say, hey, or are we going to have Thanksgiving at this year? And so they came to Jesus. And so again, the Passover was an annual event. It commemorated the defining moment of Israel's history and reminded them of their deliverance from bondage, that they're no longer slaves, that with an outstretched hand, arm and a mighty hand, God delivered the people of Israel. He sent the plagues. And the final plague, if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, the final plague was the death of the firstborn. And so God through Moses says to Pharaoh and to the people of Egypt that tonight there's a death angel coming, God's justice is coming, and the only way that you can be saved is that you must have the blood of the lamb covering the doorpost. And so either justice would fall on the family or it or you would take shelter in the substitute, the blood of a lamb. And so every year, the people of Israel would remember the story. And so they would remember it through eating. And uh, we remember a lot of things through eating. That's again, Thanksgiving. I, one of my favorite, anybody say Thanksgiving is your favorite holiday? Amen. You are godly people. You are godly people. I still prefer turkey or ham over turkey, though. Anybody else? All right. Again, anyway, I'm not trying to mess with your mind. But here, the Passover meal was to be prepared. There would be certain elements and that you would have to have. And so, uh, you know, we think Thanksgiving, we have to have a turkey. Uh, in Passover, we had to have a roasted lamb, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, and four cups of wine. And so each element of the Passover meal was a visual sermon. And, and so uh, it was teaching something. And so the disciples had to prepare for that. And so Jesus gives them specific instructions. And so in verse 13 through 16, he tells the disciples, he says, hey, he tells two of them, go into town. And he tells them who they're going to find, where they're going to go and what they're going to do. You're going to meet a dude carrying water. Now, we think, well, that's kind of normal. They didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have, you know, faucets in the house. And so they had to get water. So it'd be normal that you'd see a dude getting, you know, a jar of water. Uh, but this was not normal because in that day, men didn't carry the water jugs. It would either be a woman or a slave. And so here, this guy was kind of a little unusual. He didn't fit the normal. And so they find this guy and everything that Jesus said was going to happen, happened. They found the dude carrying the jar of water. The dude took him to a place. They talked to the guy who owned the place. And the guy knew that they were coming and said, here's where you're going to go. And here's where you're going to do the meal. And everything Jesus said happened. Now, we read stuff like this in the Bible. We just kind of glance over it. But I really believe that this was a moment of trust 
that the disciples had to learn even more. They had to trust the words of Jesus. These two guys go to somebody they didn't know to take them to a place they had never been to ask them a very serious thing, where are we going to have Passover? And it happened exactly as Jesus had. And what Jesus was doing was teaching a simple lesson in trust that whatever God says, you can do knowing that God's word proves true. But here's something else. Stay with me in this, that everywhere God sends us, he has already been. It's as if Jesus had already gone before these two guys and made all the preparations. And so the same is here is that God only sends you and I where he's already been. He is the God of the already, but not yet. He is the God who sees before us and he goes before us to prepare a way for us. Why is that important? Well, it was important to these guys because of this. Jesus was about to send all of these men to places they had never been before to preach the gospel to all the nations of the world. And they needed to learn this simple truth that God goes before us and sees ahead of us. And we can trust God, even though we cannot see what God sees. And as I shared with you before, that we follow Christ in an uncertain certainty that we know that he's already been where we're going. And so whatever you go this week, God's already been there. Whatever is ahead of you, whatever you do not know, God's already there. It may be this week, God forbid, you get a call that says you have cancer. It may be this week that you have a horrible situation at your work. It may be that God is calling you to share the gospel with the neighbor. You can rest assured the God of the already and not yet has already gone where you are going. And he will be there and he'll meet your needs. And that was a little extra. That was a commercial thought. Let's get into the text. Brought to you by Jesus, that commercial was. (laughs) Verse 17, it was evening. Now, again, the Jewish day started at 6 p.m., ended at 6 p.m., and so it was evening, and so it's now 6 o'clock. It's sundown. All the disciples are in the upper room. They're reclining at table. Jesus was the master of the ceremony. So, again, think of Thanksgiving. Here you have the master of the house, the master of ceremony. Somebody's hosting the sucker. It was Jesus. Now, in the Passover, if some of you maybe have a Jewish background or maybe you are, uh, you have gone through a Passover ceremony, a Seder, there's an order. And the order of the meal was represented by four cups. Now, our kind of American culture is like, like we have uh, appetizers, we have, you know, we have maybe salads, soups, main course, and then we have desserts. And so it's kind of a similar type thought here. So there would be this thing, and these four parts of the meal would be centered around four promises that God made to Israel in Exodus chapter six. Here are the four promises. I will bring you out. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And so here they are. The Bible says that they're reclining at table. Now, we're used to like the Leonardo da Vinci uh, Last Supper uh, thought that you have all these guys on a big table with long beards and long hair and flowing robes. And it was just so, no, that's not what it looked like. Basically think of three padded uh, couches on the ground in a U shape. And there'd be like three or four people on a couch and there would be a low table. Food would be there. Drink would be on there and you would recline. And here's how you would recline. 
you would recline to your left. And so you kind of lay here and your elbow would prop you up and you would eat with your right hand. And so you're here, your feet are there. And the next dude's like right there. I'm glad we don't eat that way anymore. That'd be weird. Do you imagine? Hey, Bill, pass the ketchup. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, so that's what's going on there. And so now the Bible says that they're eating. Now, the, the, why this is important, you probably would never think about this, but why this is important to Bible geeks and nerds like me is that it tells me that they are now past the second cup. So there's a first cup, then there's a second cup. The second cup is based on this promise, I will free you from being slaves. And so before they would drink that cup, before they would get into the meal, the master of ceremonies would quote scripture. And he would quote, even to this day, this happens, Exodus chapter 12. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, I'm gonna quote this passage. So if you'll go there, go to, the, go to Exodus 12, please. And then you see the parentheses? I want you to say that out loud. So I'm gonna say the non-parentheses, you say the parentheses. This is how it would be if you go to Passover meal. Here we go. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And so Jesus would then explain what that, what that passage meant. And he would explain that God was the only one who could provide a way of deliverance. That God would not send an angel. God did not send a seraph. God did not send a messenger. But God would send himself to save his people. Y'all catching that? And so after that really intense moment, they drink the cup. They're eating the meal appetizers, they're eating the bread, having a little roasted lamb, bitter herbs, pass me the Brussels sprouts. Jesus just all of a sudden makes a statement. Have you ever ate dinner with somebody and they make a funky statement? And you're like, why did you say that? <laughs> and so Jesus says, truly I say to you, truly I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. One of you that's eating with me. Now, immediately to Jesus' right was John. The reason why he was the youngest, so it's John the Revelator, wrote the book of Revelation. To his left, most scholars believe, was Judas, Iscariot. Not Escargo, Iscariot. <laughs> As a kid, I used to think he was, he's like Judas Snails, <laughs> you know. Anyway. So Jesus says, hey, one of y'all is going to betray me. And they're like, is it I? Is it I? And they're all upset because they know that there's some low down, dirty snitch in the group. And they're like, who is it? Let's weed them out. Jesus, says, it's one of the 12. And it's somebody dipping bread with me. So like, have you ever gone to Carabas? And you got the bread and you got the oil and you got the stuff in the oil and you're, and you're dipping the bread. And you know, now they give you your own individual bowls because of like sanitary stuff and COVID-19 and stuff like that. And so you go and you tear off your piece of bread and you dip. Well, in that day, you just had kind of this area dipping. So here you have Jesus dipping, and guess who else is dipping with him? Judas Iscariot. So Jesus says, this, is, this was written. This was written that before the foundation of the world, someone's going to betray the Son of God. 
And Jesus said, look, I'm not surprised by this. I'm heartbroken. I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised. And then Jesus puts a curse out. He says, cursed is the man. And so Judas is sitting there dipping bread. And Jesus says, it would be better that Judas would never have been born. Now, why is Jesus like throwing shade on Judas like this? Why, why, why is he so rough? Well, think about who Judas was and what, he'd hap- what had happened to him. I mean, he met Jesus. He saw Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He heard Jesus' sermons and he saw Jesus' miracles. And yet he still sold Jesus out for nothing. This is truth. The greater the revelation, the greater the responsibility. It would be much better to go to hell from a jungle than it would be to go from a pew. Now you say, well, preacher, you know, this, this is where the whole Jesus thing gets a little wonky with me. How is it that God could judge Judas for something God had already predestined for Judas to do? I mean, couldn't Judas just say, well, you know, God, I, I was just doing what you wanted me to do. And, and if it wasn't for me, Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross. And if he hadn't have died on the cross, everybody would go to hell. So you should thank me. But no. <laughs> Because even though God had ordained it, Judas was morally responsible for what he had done. Listen, divine sovereignty never cancels out moral responsibility. See, what Judas did was evil, and Judas knew it was evil. Here, don't get the idea that Judas was some innocent bystander. John chapter 12, verse 6 says he was a thief. He loved money, and he used Jesus to get money. That didn't happen today, does it? He used Jesus to get money so that that money could get him power and pleasure. And when Satan entered him, that's Luke chapter 22, and Judas betrayed Jesus, Judas was not innocent. As a matter of fact, Satan never takes innocent people captive. Jesus loved money. And Judas covered his love for money with phony external relationship with Jesus. And when the rubber met the road, he sold Jesus out. And so Jesus looked at Judas in that moment in the, in the, in the olive oil dish. And look, we know this in John. He says, whatever you're going to do, do quickly. Now, some of y'all think that while I'm preaching. <laughs> Preach it, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. <laughs> if you get done in time, I can get brunch. <laughs> and so in that moment, Judas knew that Jesus knew. And he did it anyway. Here's the big picture point I want to share with that is that nothing happened outside of the knowledge and control of Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen, when it was going to happen, who it was going to be that did it. He had already predicted it three times, and yet he willingly and voluntarily embraced the will of God with joy set before him. One commentator John Edwards said that Jesus is not a tragic hero caught up in events beyond his control. There's no hint of desperation, fear, anger, or futility on his part. Jesus does not cower or retreat at the plots as plots are hatched against him. He displays, as he has throughout the gospel, a sovereign freedom and authority to follow a course he has freely chosen in accordance with God's plan. So here you have the end of the old. The old system 
false converts, they're gone. The emptiness of broken religion, gone. Now you have the transformation of the Passover. You have the beginning of the new. So now we're going to pick up. Okay, we're going to pick up verse 22. After, as they were eating, so remember they're eating, Jesus took the bread. Now normally, this, so the main meal has been eaten, and this is kind of the end of that moment. It would be the, the bread that Jesus would take would be called the afikonin. There's so much I want to say. I don't have enough time to say it, and we're, you're happy, right? And so uh, Jesus would take this bread. It was kind of like uh, the normal part of the story. And so Jesus, to this point, has been very traditional. He's followed the whole deal all all the way through. But now Jesus takes that afikonin, that matzah bread, and he transforms it. See, it was, the reason why it was unleavened, it was one, because leaven is represents sin, but a second reason, it was because it was the bread of haste. He didn't have time for the leaven to rise. And so uh, Jesus uh, is saying, but it was also the bread of affliction. It's an affliction for God's people. So Jesus takes this bread, which is a picture of the affliction of God's people, and he says, no, 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 this is my body. He's talking about his own suffering. Now think about this. What greater picture can you have of suffering than bread? You say, what are you what in the world? Think about this. How does bread start? It starts as a seed of wheat that's pushed into the soil, buried in the soil. And then in time it grows and the sun scorches it. And in time, it grows up to where there's a big combine, a big machine that comes and takes it and chops it and cuts it and grinds it. And finally, you have a kernel of grain. That kernel of grain has an outer shell that has to be beaten off of it. So it's beaten and beaten and beaten till finally you have this kernel of wheat. And then after you get that kernel of wheat, that kernel of wheat is then ground down into fine, fine flour. Then that fine flour is drowned in water, mushed and mixed and mashed, put on a tray and put under a, underneath a hot, fiery oven until it is crispy. And then it is served in the last part of the bread's life is it's ground down by the teeth of a person. Jesus says, that's a picture of me. Broken. Afflicted. Suffering. This is my body. It's my bread of affliction, my bread of suffering. And then he, he took a cup. Now, this is where he's continuing this. He takes the third cup, the third cup, the cup of redemption that says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Jesus does something that's a little different. He fills his cup, not theirs. Now, I remember one time I went to a church in Belgium preaching there, and they took the Lord's Supper, and they had what's called a common cup. Y'all know what a common cup is? means everybody drinks out the cup. Any germaphobes in the house? Aren't y'all glad we don't do common cup? Amen. Amen. Jesus filled his cup. And then he does something else. He says, listen, the, this cup, this juice, this wine is symbolic. It's symbolic of a new covenant. Now, some of you are new to church. You're like, what's a covenant? It's a contract. It's an agreement. 
And, but he says something different. He says, I'm not gonna drink this cup with you. Y'all gonna drink it, but I'm not gonna drink it. I'm not gonna drink it until that day. Now, in ancient times, when someone says, I'm not gonna eat or drink something until they were making a promise. They were making a pledge. They were making an oath. They were making a covenant. A covenant was a relationship of obligation between one party and another party. And so this oath was like signing a contract. Now, back in the olden days, in the Old Testament days, here's how you did contracts. Today, we do contracts with attorneys. We do contracts with, with different people and paper, and we write with ink. And that day, you would take an animal. So let's say one of you, we're gonna, I'm going to buy a house from you. And you say, the house is this much. And I say, okay, I'll give you that much. And I'm going to pay it over 30 years at like 17% interest, right? God help us. I'm so glad I got my house when I did. Um, and then what they would do, okay, we agreed on a price. We agreed on the terms. And then we'd take an animal and I'd cut the animal in two. We don't do that. And they would put the pieces of the animal, one here and one there, and blood would be everywhere. And then what you would do is that both people who entered into a contract would walk through one at a time. And when they did that, that was saying, what happened to those animals will happen to me if I don't fulfill what I promised to you. It was a blood covenant. Again, I'm glad we don't do that. So when Jesus says, I'm going to make a covenant, this is the covenant of my blood, he's not asking us to walk through the pieces because he knows we can never fulfill our side of the bargain. So Jesus says, I'm not going to ask you to shed your blood. I'm going to shed my blood for you. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant. Now, some of you, you're, you're new to church. You're saying, this is really, really weird. I mean, I like the Christianity stuff about not judging people and loving people and being kind to people, but the blood stuff, that's weird. No, it's not. Because it is through the shedding of blood that we can have a relationship with God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. When you sin, when somebody sins, somebody's got to die. Either you die or Jesus dies. And Jesus says, I'm going to die. And so when Jesus said to the disciples in this moment, this is my body, this is my blood. He was saying everything you've ever seen in all the old Testament, all those past deliveries, all those sacrifices, all those blood, all the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and all of that, every bit of that pointed to me. And so just as this just as the first Passover meal was eaten the night before God redeemed Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt by the blood of the lamb, so the last Passover meal was eaten the night before God redeemed the world from the bondage of sin and death through the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb of God. And so as Jesus is saying this blood of the new covenant, he's making the final promise, the fourth promise, which is this. The fourth promise in Exodus is the same promise he's given to you and me today, that I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. That I will take you and I'm gonna bring you into the Father's arms and I'm gonna bring you into heaven and you're gonna feast and you're gonna be with God forever. And so the first meal of the new covenant points us to the ultimate supper in heaven with Jesus. And then at that supper in heaven, one day, Revelation 19, all the redeemed of all of history will gather with Jesus Christ as our King. So the Passover meal, like, let's just say Thanksgiving, 
was eaten every year for centuries. And this is what it meant. It was that annual gathering where people, family members typically, young and old, grandmas and grandpas, moms and dads, kids and grandkids would all gather around. They would eat. And while they were eating and while they were there, they would remember, they would talk, they would talk about how God delivered Israel. And also they would tell stories of how God had personally delivered them. And this Passover meal was like a remember when moment. Remember maybe when you sat with your grandma and grandpa and, and you say, tell me about this and tell me about that. And Remember when, tell me about this. Well, that's what Passover was. And they would tell the story of how God over and over again saved his people. And they did that so that the next generation would grow up and they would know about God and they would know about faith and they would have a testimony of their own. I told you before, what is it? Ronald Reagan says we're one generation away from basically extinction of democracy. Well, listen, we are one generation away from extinction of almost Christianity. And we know that God says the gates of hell will not prevail. But listen, we've got to tell the next generation. And so every time, stay with me, every time the church gathers and every time we take that little cracker and we drink that little juice, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are retelling the story of God's salvation. So as a family of believers, young and old, from different ethnicities and different backgrounds and socioeconomic status, we gather together because the ground is level at the foot of the cross and we tell the stories of God's grace in our lives. Now, that bread and that juice do not transform into the literal body and blood of Christ, but they're symbolic. They are a reminder of what Christ has done. We need reminders. We need visual aids. We, we saw in baptism that visual aid that we were dead in our trespasses and buried with Christ, but yet raised to walk in the newness of life. And so when we eat the cracker and we drink the juice, we are reminding ourselves of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. As a matter of fact, the early Christians, one of their favorite postures of worship when they took communion was they would worship with arms stretched out like this, like a, like a shape of a cross. One scholar says that for them, it was the ultimate posture of victory. The cross, what looked and felt like death, was a part of God's great triumph. See, the Lord's Supper is a time for us to remember when, and when we do, we are retelling our personal testimony of grace. That I was once a slave to sin with no hope of God within. But then one glorious day, the truths of the gospel pointed the way. No longer a slave, no longer estranged. I am forgiven and I have been changed. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Redeemed by his infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. This is our testimony. What is your testimony? Do you understand that your story of grace is important? That how God has brought you from death to life is important. You should never get over that story. Revelation chapter 12. The Bible says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. 
for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. You know you have an enemy and his name is Satan. You don't worship Satan. You don't make fun of Satan. He's your enemy. And you know what Satan does? Because he does it to me, he accuses me. Does he ever accuse you? Does he ever make you think that you're a horrible person, that God can never love you, that you'll never amount to anything, that you'll never be good enough, and that you'll never, ever make a difference? Do you have someone who constantly tells you and reminds you of your past and constantly points you to all the areas in your life where you've screwed up, where you've messed up, where you've done wrong? Well, the book of Revelation says there's a day he's going down. And they... They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their, say that word with me, testimony. What's your testimony? Will you stay with me? Like, don't leave. Like, stay with me. Listen, if you are a Christian, this is your testimony. That because of Jesus, there's nothing I can do that would make God love me more. And there's nothing I can do that would make God love me less than he loves me right now. Because he loves me as he loves Jesus. That's what that supper was all about. It's reminding that I'm not saved by what I do. I'm not right before God by what I do. I'm right before God by what he has done. Parents, you need to remind your kids this. Some of you, maybe you grew up with guilt and shame. Maybe your religion was a religion of guilt and shame and damnation. That's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that there's nothing I can do that make God love me less and there's nothing I can do that would make God love me more because he loves me as he loves Jesus. Only those who have trusted in him and surrendered their lives to him can say that. But if you have, that's your testimony. And you wanna defeat the devil this week? When he reminds you of your past, you tell him about his future. And you tell him, greater is he that's in me than anyone that's picking on me. They get done with the meal, and the Bible says in verse 26, they sung a hymn. Scholars say that this is Psalm 115 to 118. The hallelujahs, the halals. We have a lot of great musicians in this church. Some of you all are good singers. I'm just being honest. Do you imagine hearing Jesus sing over you? Do you imagine hearing Jesus sing something to you? Do you imagine hearing Jesus singing Man of Sorrows? Jesus is going to sing a song with his disciples, and here's what the words of the song are This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now, will you say these last words with me? This is the day that the Lord has made. 
Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What day is that? The day that Christ would be crucified. The day in which all of creation has been longing for. The day that Jesus would give his life for us so that we can have his life and be with him forever. My question to you is, are you glad for that day? Are you grateful for that day? Are you thankful for that day? Because Jesus, who was headed to that cross, he said he was glad for that day. Let's end with this. One of my heroes went to be with the Lord this week. Timothy Keller, who is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, went to be with the Lord at age 72. In his book, which was a commentary for the Gospel of Mark called The King's Cross, he concludes this chapter on the Lord's Supper by saying this. The Lord's Supper points us toward our future with Jesus. It gives us just a small but very real foretaste of the future. Imagine you were in Egypt just after the first Passover. If you stopped Israelites in those days and said, who are you and what's happening here? They would say, I was a slave under a sentence of death, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb and escaped that bondage. And now God lives in our midst and we are following him to the promised land. Keller says, that's exactly what Christians say today. If you trust in Jesus's substitutionary sacrifice, the greatest longings of your heart will be satisfied on the day that you sit down for the real feast in the promised kingdom of God. Keller says that the gospel says you're simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe and yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. What a mighty God we serve. As we take time to take these elements, would you get your elements. This is a family meal. If you are a child of God and you have trusted Christ as your savior, this, this meal is for you. If you didn't get the elements, just slip up your hands. We have people that'll get them for you. Hopefully as you take this, you have a different perspective. This is a retelling of the story of God's grace. This is a remember when. Remember when you were saved? Remember when you knew? Remember? Jesus said, this is my body. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the body of Christ. That he took on himself the bread of our affliction that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Take eat. Jesus took the cup. 
He says, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is proof that everything I have promised you is going to happen. Because he signed it in his own blood. He says, I'm not going to drink this with you until we get to heaven. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the blood of Christ. That there is a fountain filled with blood brought from Emmanuel's veins. That sinners who plunge beneath that flow lose all their guilty stains. And Father, we look forward to that day we drink this cup with you in heaven. We ask that you help us to never forget the cost of our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take drink. The Bible says they sang a hymn. Would you stand? We're going to sing Jesus Paid It All. And I want you to sing it as if you were singing to the Lord with all of your heart of how grateful you are. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.